Hello, welcome to the Weekly Brief, brought to you by The Daily Journal. I'm Howard Miller, the contributing editor and podcast host for The Daily Journal, and today we're honored to have as our guest, Chris Penongbayan. Chris Penongbayan is the executive director of California Change Lawyers. You may know California Change Lawyers over the years by its previous name, the California Bar Foundation. The State Bar of California began the California Bar Foundation as part of the State Bar in 1988. In 2015, it created a separate entity so that California Bar Foundation was a separate charitable foundation. And in 2018, when Chris Penongbian joined, became the executive director. During that same period, the California Bar Foundation changed its name to California Change Lawyers, a very significant change, as we will see in talking to Chris. We're talking to Chris because he is representative, I think, of the enormous changes that are happening in the California legal profession, both in his own life in terms of what he's done and in terms of the leadership position he has as executive director of the California Bar Foundation. Uh, Chris came from Massachusetts. His parents are immigrants from the Philippines. He graduated from Brown University, UCLA Law School, then went to the Bay Area, uh, did work that we'll talk about starting in 2004, 2005, and then became executive director of the foundation of the Change Lawyers, 2018. Interestingly enough, Chris himself, and we'll talk about what the California Bar Foundation did, but Chris himself received a scholarship from the California Bar Foundation in 2003 while he was a student at UCLA, uh, which had an impact uh, on his life as well. So I want to talk about Chris, about the choices he's made, what he's done, and then California Change Lawyers as an organization and how it demonstrates through his life and through the organization some of the major demographic and other changes that are happening at the California Bar, practice, judiciary, and in every other way. Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Hello. Thank you, Howard. It is really uh, an honor to be invited to be on your podcast, so thank you so much. One of the reasons we wanted to do this is because I really think in your life, you know, leadership is displayed by personal choices that connect up with with, uh, other sources that run in society. And I think in your life and your choices, uh, you're demonstrating what's happening in the California legal profession. So tell us about your choices. You graduated in 2004 from UCLA Law School. uh, And uh, what do you do after that? Sure. Well, um, you know, a funny story is that when I applied to UCLA, um, I applied to the public interest law program and I wrote that I wanted to start a Filipino American legal defense fund because I was from the East Coast and I knew about the Asian American legal defense fund. And I just felt like, you know, my calling to come to law school was to serve uh, the community. And I thought, okay, I have this big idea and I'm sad to say it never came to fruition. I did not found a Filipino American defense uh, legal defense fund, but I have since committed the last almost two decades um, of work to serving the community through uh, work with public interest organizations um, and now at California Change Lawyers. Um, but you know what has really guided me through you know all of the choices that I have made is not only this idea of service and, and giving back to the community, but this drive that I have, um, you know, that's been instilled in me to do everything that I can to create a more fair and just 
legal system and by extension society. And I think it, it comes from, I think, perhaps the my parents' story, right? Because they immigrated from the Philippines at a time right when martial law was um, declared by then President Marcos in the Philippines. And under martial law, there's no freedom of the press, there's no freedom of assembly. Um, and, you know, they didn't tell me these stories when I was growing up, but as I came into my own political consciousness in college and, and beyond, I understood what privileges um, I have being raised in the United States and having gone to very elite educational institutions that it's, it's kind of my calling to try and do everything that I can to improve the conditions, you know, um, for, for all Californians and, you know, however many people that, that I can reach. Well, you mentioned uh, doing work for the Filipino American community. This is a very proud time in California for the Filipino lawyers, isn't it? Yes, it is. Absolutely. I mean, I, I did come to California because I kind of thought as a Filipino American learning about Filipino American history, California was like the promised land because Filipinos had been here for a long, long time. It's the state with the most populous state for Filipino Americans in the whole country. Um, but, you know, I did not know when I moved here 20 years ago that we would ever, ever think of having a, the chief justice of the California Supreme Court, uh, Justice Tani Kantil Sakue. Uh, I never thought we would, at the same time, have a Filipino-American attorney general, um, Attorney General Rob Bonta. Um, and so we in the Filipino community, Asian-American community, are so proud, I think, to have such prominent uh, leaders from the Filipino community um, serving, serving the state. And of course, one of the things it does, and it's really important because we tend to create groupings that sometimes are artificial, a grouping Asian-Americans, of course, include a great many different different groups from different parts of Asia, from Oceania, extending even to India. And in many ways, it's important, which you've demonstrated and talked about, the specifics of the Filipino-American experience. I mean, I doubt uh, that many people know a great deal about the history of the United States and the Philippines, going back to when the Philippines became an American uh, uh, based American territory after the Spanish-American War and the, the warfare that went on after that, the guerrilla warfare. And I doubt that many people realize that the Philippines and Hawaii had exactly the same status in American law at the time of the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Both Hawaii and the Philippines uh, were simply uh, territories of the United States. Before Hawaii was a state, the United States fleet was in Hawaii. Substantial United States Air Force and Army personnel were in the Philippines. So the Philippines, over time, have been a critical part of the American experience. And what you've mentioned, the Chief Justice, the Attorney General, and what you're doing also really, I think, helps people understand, I don't want to use the word separateness, but that there is a distinct history and community uh, in the Filipino-American community that is different from a lot of the other experiences. So you now come uh, to become, in 2018, Executive Director uh, let's talk about the change in name from California Bar Foundation to California Change Lawyers. What what was it that motivated that? Yeah, well, uh, first of all, I'm extremely impressed at how learned you are about uh, Filipino-American history and Philippine history. So uh, I hope your listeners uh, are inspired to, you know, to dig in a little bit more and maybe we can talk a little bit uh, down the road in, in our conversation about that. Um, but 
we at uh, California Change Lawyers changed our name because we wanted to more explicitly express our commitment to legal change makers. And so change lawyers is a play on change maker, um, those who use the law in order to be agents of change. Um, and we felt like this was important because um, you had mentioned a little bit earlier around some of the changes uh, with regard to our legal relationship um, to the state bar. Uh, we actually became an independent 501c3 organization um, along the way. And um, we wanted to spread our wings um, a little bit because we wanted to, you know, we took a, a good hard look at, you know, the impacts that we were having as an organization. And, you know, the dial has been moving very slowly in terms of diversifying the California legal, legal profession. Um, access to justice issues are very um, slowly changing. Um, and at the same time, you know, we're deeply committed to both of these issues, increasing diversity and increasing access to justice. But I think we saw kind of the a unique role that we could play in the ecosystem um, of organizations working on these issues by focusing a, a little bit more on people, um, people who are our scholars, uh, who receive our scholarships, uh, people who are our fellows, um, who are um, fellows who receive uh, the opportunity to practice in a public interest context, whether through a summer fellowship or a year-long or a two-year-long fellowship, which both of which we fund. Um, and, you know, it, it, it also uh, was driven by the idea that we as a foundation can do more um, than give money away. That is our chief purpose. Um, but there's, I think there's been... Uh, a movement within philanthropy uh, in America, but also in the legal profession, that the status quo is not working. Um, because change is so slow, what are some ways that we can accelerate the pace of change? Um, and so we look at how we can develop, the, we can empower the next generation of leaders in the legal field. Um, it's not changing our, our focus, but it's maybe refining the why of, of why we do what we do. Um, because I think, you know, with the Chief Justice and with the Attorney General, but also um, Vice President Kamala Harris, she, you know, um, is a UC Hastings um, graduate, that there are many pathways to leadership um, that are just not equally available to many in our legal community. Yeah. And so what can we do um, beyond giving away uh, financial support to help break down the barriers so that people can um, realize their own power, uh, realize that they belong and that they can be change makers wherever they go, whether it's public service or in the private sector. And I want to say, uh, really right now, I think it's an appropriate time to say it, that we'll talk a great deal more about what Change Lawyers is doing, but if you want to follow it, uh, if you go to changelawyers.org, the website, changelawyers.org, you will see what the organization does. And as part of that, you can also subscribe to its news brief, which will come at least once a week, and, and sometimes on the list you get on even, even more. And it is, I think, one of the best ways to get a grasp of the changes that young lawyers and the changes that the demographic change is, is demanding. And what's so interesting, and I think it's important 
for those of us who, who, who believe that a great deal of change has happened over the years in the growth of legal services organizations, for example, and some people say, look at what's been done over the years in the growth of legal services, in the importance of pro bono work. But the important thing for everyone to understand, and, and why I'm so interested in what Chris is doing, is that every generation is impatient. And it's important that the generations that are making change be impatient, no matter what their predecessors uh, believed uh, that, that they have accomplished. So tell us then, I, I put people onto the website, I suggest you look at it. Uh, so right now, what are the current things, what are you trying to implement right now in terms of what you're doing? Yes, well, um, I just wanna um, tackle the, the part of your um, question around the generational change really quickly, um, because I think that is an important driver of why um, why we're doing what we're doing. You know, I, I've read a lot of studies around the impact that millennials are having in the workplace. And I think the legal profession is also um, feeling the impact of the millennial generation where they are um, just more driven by values uh, in a way that maybe uh, Gen X and, and boomers uh, social justice values in particular um, may have been in terms of what they're expecting out of their workplace. Um, so uh, as an example, um, I think this generation is gravely concerned about, uh, or the millennial generation and, and maybe all of us by extension, are gravely concerned about climate change. Um, the millennial generation has just accepted uh, marriage equality. They've accepted uh, LGBT inclusion as just the way it is. And I think we're, we're, we're starting to see a little bit even more from Gen Z. Um, I, I just researched this yesterday to make sure, but the oldest Gen Z is now, I think, 24 or 26. Um, but that's the age where they are in law school and they are going to be joining the workforce. And they have even more advanced ideas, you know, compared to even my generation, uh, Gen X, about um, how, what it, what society should be, right? They're talking about um, trauma. They're talking about things that, you know, we're, we're just only starting to understand, uh, some of us in the older generation. And so I think these changed expectations from the younger generations are good because they are not um, going to let the mistakes that our generations have made and, and just accept it. They want to see um, more inclusive workplaces. They want to see racial justice. I mean, I think what happened over the past year with um, the, the murder of George Floyd and then the ongoing racial reckoning that has you know, gripped the country still, um, in addition to the pandemic, um, the expectations around what we should all be doing are just elevated. And so, you know, if you have done nothing uh, to look at racial justice uh, within yourself, but at least, uh, you know, in your organization since last year, I think a lot of the younger generation are going to say, mm, that's not quite right. No, uh, we've seen we, we need to be making some changes. We've seen the impact here, you know, even before, uh, even before the previous year, 
uh, when the issue came up of the part of the Me Too movement of mandatory arbitration clauses in law firms uh, involving around certain issues because law students at leading law schools basically said they weren't going to take jobs at firms uh, that enforced those mandatory arbitration clauses. The firms dropped the mandatory arbitration clauses. So there are, we, we too often do not give enough credit or understanding, not just to generational changes, but to, to things like generational changes within families. You know, there's a wonderful study of families during the French Revolution in 1789 at these states general. And amazingly, by and large, when there were brothers in the same family at these states general, the younger brothers took the oath of the tennis court and the older brothers sat with the king. And these generational, these age differences, these different approaches to life, really important. So we're now, we're clearly looking at this change, the kind of change you're, you're, you're talking about. So what is it that the young lawyers, and it's interesting you talk about generations now coming along, uh, and, and I think people listening and hearing that you graduated from UCLA in 2004 and you're now talking about younger generations coming along, <laughs> give people a great, a great deal of perspective. So let's talk about law firms, for example. Suppose you're, you're a senior partner in, in a major law firm right now, uh, and, and you are asked, uh, uh, you're part of the management committee, and you're asked, uh, what are the most important things we should do uh, to meet the concerns of the people now coming out of law school uh, and, and the generation that is beginning to practice law now? Yeah, that's a great, uh, a great question, Eddie. Um, I'll, I like to um, provide, as, as often as I can, snippets from conversations that we have with our own scholars um, or our fellows around you know, what their experiences are, because I think it, it's an example. And this is like a very... Um, I guess an easy example, but it's emblematic of something larger. And so I spoke to um, one of our African-American male um, scholars recently, and he um, actually before the pandemic, I'll say, when, you know, we were all meeting in person and yes. working, you know, actually in person. Um, but he had been in, in his job as an, a first year associate for about a year and just remarked about how isolated he felt um, because there were no other African-American um, lawyers at his particular firm. And just noticing the difference that associates who were white received from partners. Uh, for example, being never being asked out to lunch um, and just kind of the informal ways that um, office culture is built that he did not um, feel that he was being um, included in that. And I think it's a really easy example, but it again shows kind of the broader call and question, I guess, on how to be as inclusive as possible. Um, it's not around being um, a little bit inclusive. I think the call now is how can we be as inclusive as possible? Meaning how do we create a sense that even if you're the only attorney of color in your firm or you're one of a small number, how do we create the feeling that you belong? Um, and that is not going to be handled by checking the box on like having a diversity training. It's not going to be um, small actions. It's a feeling that you get um, if you're one of the 
you know, a member of a group that is not traditionally represented in law. Uh, it, it, it's, it's a sense that um, even though I may be the only one, um, whether it's, you know, maybe it's uh, being LGBT um, or it's, you know, any other identity that is not traditionally represented in law, do I feel like my organization is making me feel like I belong, right? And that's, um, that, that's not, the onus is not on the person who is new to the organization. It, the onus is on, you know, the managing partners to create the example um, of how the organization can become more inclusive. It's so important because, uh, you know, it adds a dimension to the discussion. Because often the discussion, what we first started talking about, the social issues, the political issues, the group issues. But that adds a tremendously important dimension, which is how people work and act in their everyday lives, simply in terms of the relationship, regardless of what the larger social issues are, in terms of empathy and understanding, uh, in terms of seeking to get inside the skin and understanding uh, the people who are, you may think are different than you, uh, in making that effort in everyday relationships, and it's that, it's that that has been so much a part of what we've been wrestling with, not just the larger political and social issues. And, and having said that, really indicates a whole dimension and importance that we have to continue to talk about. We're talking now about changes, demographic and other changes in the legal profession. You know, those of you listening to this can receive one-hour MCLA credit for listening to the podcast through the Daily Journal. Uh, let's take a short break now so you can hear how you can obtain that MCLA credit, and then we will return. The Daily Journal is proud to provide the weekly brief and other content as MCLE credit. Head to dailyjournal.com MCLE to see all the available content and more information on how to earn one hour of MCLE credit all from the comfort of your home or office. Read an article, listen to a podcast, get credit. The Daily Journal doesn't just feature stories from our staff of reporters. We also rely on columns from attorneys, judicial officers, and legal experts like you to inform the legal community through our perspective coverage. If there's a column you would like to write or to get more information on writing for The Daily Journal, contact our associate legal editor, Elon Isaacs, at the email in the description of this episode. We're back now from the break, and since we've taken a break and 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 uh, shifted, uh, Chris, you mentioned when we started talking about the relationship between the United States and the Philippines that there were parts of that history that you hoped that we could talk about. Uh, I think it's an important subject. I think it's important to understanding the history that people who live in this country view as their history. I mean, your parents in the Filipino-American community viewed its history. Every... Every group, every generation has its own history. And in understanding people, you've got to make an effort to understand what people consider to be their history. Uh, and so what is it, talking about the United States relationship with the Philippines and the Filipino community, what are the most important things you'd want people to know? Well, I think um, 
what's really important to know, and I'll use Filipino Americans as an example, uh, but it really uh, can apply to any kind of numerically small group, but that is really part of the fabric of American society is just understanding um, the history that drives immigration, right? Um, immigration is changing the face of our country. It's changing the face of California. And, you know, I would argue that where some of the largest social tensions are um, in other parts of the country are where there are massive demographic changes that are happening. Um, for example, in next door, Arizona, um, around having um, a, a new face um, to the population that is getting older and rising in political influence and, you know, coming up against um, just the way things were and the way things used to be is the way I'd like it to be. Um, so it's, it's kind of like how you relate to change. But for Filipino Americans, um, I think it's important to know that we have had a history in this country for actually centuries, um, back when Spain was uh, the colonizing power in the Philippines. And part of... Um, and of course, pardon me for interrupt you, but the reason it's called the Philippines is because it's named after a Spanish king named Philip. Yes, exactly. And so there are, um, the Philippines has had uh, two colonizers, uh, Spain and the United States, and just a deep history um, with the United States coming, uh, like I mentioned, the first Filipinos, I think, came to the United States in maybe the 1500s um, in, to Louisiana, of all places. Um, but the the history of immigration of Filipinos to the United States really uh, reflects the the relationship between the United States and the Philippines, whether we were um, colonized or whether the Philippines was colonized by the United States, which actually allowed Filipinos to immigrate um, because at the time of colonization, there were exclusionary immigration laws, for example, prohibiting Chinese from immigrating, preventing the Japanese from immigrating. Uh, but the Filipinos could come because they were colonial subjects and populated uh, the um, the needs of West Coast agriculture and uh, uh, um, the cannery uh, business in Alaska. And so Filipinos came to fill these um, economic workforce needs. But, you know, alongside that, as the generations passed, Filipinos were part of the farm labor movement here in California. Um, you know, we attribute so much, rightfully so, to uh, Mexican farm workers, but Filipino farm workers were working right beside the Mexican farm workers and then organizing for better labor conditions, including in the famous um, grape strike um, from many um, decades ago. So all to say that um, it's important to understand the history of different groups who come to the United States or, or came through um, enslavement, or even the groups that were already here, the indigenous community, because right now uh, it's not a level playing field. Um, and many of the inequities based on race that do exist are the result of laws and policies and cultural beliefs and attitudes around what what is uh, acceptable. Um, and that's slowly changing. I think what is acceptable now even 10 or 20 years ago um, is, is totally different. Um, and so my opinion is that you can ride the wave of change or you can resist it, but the change is coming. But one of the significant parts about change coming is you're talking about 
his it, groups uh, historically excluded for many things. But now, given what's happened uh, in the universities and in the law schools and different admissions policies, in many ways, we have not just individuals, but a significant number of people coming from communities into the legal profession. It's no longer, you know, just one person who is a, a pathfinder, so to speak. It is now a, a communities of, of people that are coming uh, from, from, uh, from uh, groups that formerly were excluded. And, uh, you know, working with those groups becomes so important. So change lawyers then... You go tell us, tell us about some of your programs, the scholarship programs, for example. How do the scholarship programs work to help in what you're trying to achieve? Yes, um, so our scholarships are probably our most well-known program. Um, and what we do is we partner with uh, law firms or bar organizations um, to sponsor scholars. Um, and so we receive hundreds of applications from so many uh, deserving law students, uh, California law students, and we have to make the tough choices around the 50 each year that we will accept. We have two programs, a 1L scholarship and a bar exam scholarship, mostly for th uh, 3Ls, um, but we provide economic support for them to be able to pay for their educational costs or pay for the cost of the bar exam, um, but it's all made possible by partnerships with the legal community because they are the ones that support us uh, to be able to distribute the scholarships. So our success is really dependent on the generosity of the California legal community. Um, and I'm you know, really um, proud to say that we have so many partnerships with law firms and bar organizations, but you know, um, like I said, we have hundreds of applications of deserving students every year, but we only are able to provide about 50 every year. And so we're definitely looking for more um, more folks to invest in us so that we can invest in the next generation. I don't think there's anything wrong in asking for, uh, for more support. Uh, the truth of the matter is you now do 50, but my guess is with sufficient funding, you could probably do 100 or 200 in terms of oh, the applications would, that you receive. That would be a dream come true because the, the truth of the matter is that our scholars um, and our applicants are, are so, um, they, what, what we do is we evaluate them based on kind of their personal story, um, their, um, how they have overcome adversity that they faced in their life. We look at their um, academic achievement, uh, particularly if they have um, overcome uh, challenges that prevented them from being the best student possible and getting the best grades possible. So we look at things like improvement um, over, you know, uh, in their undergraduate or even in their law school career. Um, and then also their willingness to be a legal change maker, i.e. to give back um, to the community and making the community better. So those are some of the criteria that we use. And, you know, really they all meet it. And it's just a matter of us um, having to make the tough choices on which folks to support. And in terms of the people you've given scholarships to, when they graduate, what, what kind of choices are they making? Are, are they pretty much spread around the community or are there predominant work in public interest jobs, public jobs, large uh, law firms? What, what are the choices people are making yeah, that you're supporting? It is definitely um, across the board, though I would say public interest um, is the um, most common um, direction that folks go right out of law school. But we do have um, associates in big firms. Uh, 
you know, I, I will say what was super interesting um, when we did survey our scholars, uh, we, we do this annually around um, where they want to be. Um, a lot of them do want to, you know, stay in their chosen field. But one thing that really surprised me in a good way is how many of them want to become judges. And I think that that is um, encouraging, right? Because we do similarly face uh, a lack of um, uh, representative, um, uh, the lack of diversity within um, the bench is represent uh, reflective of the lack of diversity in the legal profession. And so to know that young people um, are interested in the judicial pathway is really exciting. Well, but one of the things that's so interesting about these career choices, I know friends of mine who teach uh, criminal law uh, in the law schools have told me over the years that so many people start to study criminal law when asked, they say, oh, they want to be public defenders. And my friends have spoken to them and they've said, you know, you actually can have more, at least as much and perhaps more of an impact uh, on the issues you're concerned about as a prosecutor in an attorney's office and that you have to consider the impact you can have. I think of the choices people are making that, that it, it may be worth a discussion. You know, going to work for a, a big law firm that represents an oil company uh, may present as much an opportunity uh, to have an influence on, on climate change as joining a public interest group uh, that brings lawsuits on the basis of climate change. We've seen that, for example, uh, in the remarkable election to the board of directors of ExxonMobil, in, in which uh, those concerned about it realized that seats on the board wasn't fighting from the outside, but cutting on the inside. And I, I think in terms of so much of what you're doing, and I know you talk to people about this and it's an important message, is there are all sorts of ways uh, to have influence and in many ways being an advisor to major private interests uh, may give as great an opportunity to have those candid discussions that have an impact as the more obvious I'm going to go to work for a public interest firm that's going to sue uh, to try and get change. You may actually be able to achieve more change uh, being part of a significant group of influence within the organization you want to influence as you could by choosing to fight it from outside. And I, I, that's, a, that's an important message for people concerned about your issues, isn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm a, uh, I don't know about you, but I'm a huge fan of the musical Hamil Hamilton. Yes. And um, I believe that we need our folks to be in the room when it happens. Um, and so ab you're absolutely mm -hmm. right that having um, kind of an inside strategy and an outside strategy are, are essential to um, seeing the changes that we want to see in society. Um, and we definitely, you know, agree with you that um, the district attorney's pathway is such an important one to addressing the issue of mass incarceration. That's, that's another issue area that, um, you know, the, the, the next generation really care about um, and are doing stuff to, to address. Um, but all of the outside pressure is not going to yield the results that need to happen if you don't have the right people on the inside who are listening and who are willing to be change makers from within the institutions of power. Um, and so it is so essential that people um, broaden their horizons, I would say. I mean, I, I'll speak personally for myself. I knew when I went into law school and when I finished that I wanted to work for a nonprofit organization. And so I did not look at all at public service. Um, and that is to my own detriment because I see how much influence city attorneys have, county council, uh, working for the attorney general, um, 
all have an important role to play, as well as folks who are in the private sector who are working at law firms. Um, because, you know, one thing that I saw, um, you know, very powerfully and visibly were the ways that corporate America was making their voices heard on any range of issues impacting our democracy, whether uh, by serving as pro bono counsel to on all of these various lawsuits um, on any host of issues to even more recently um, law firms really speaking up um, on the issues of um, Black Lives Matter uh, and you know that what what has happened in terms of the racial reckoning and it doesn't stop there right there is still a lot of work that um, corporate America needs to do on those issues that I had mentioned earlier around creating a sense of belonging um, internally. And that includes creating pathways to leadership within all of these organizations. That's that's a key thing that we at Change Lawyers are concerned about because you could have a diverse workforce, but if folks you know feel like they have no career um, trajectories that show them in leadership roles, then they're going to opt out. And that really does happen so much for lawyers of color. Um, they leave the law because the institutions, you know, where they find themselves are so unwilling to change. And so, you know, there's many reasons why that ha- that um, the change, you know, is still hard to come by. But I guess I'm, a, I'm putting a, an invitation out to, to everyone to really examine what are the ways that we can empower the next generation especially if it means doing things a little bit differently from what you've done in the past. Well, talk, so, talk, yeah, talk, talk okay, go ahead. I thought it was a wonderful, a really important comment. You said people leaving institutions, leaving law firms and other institutions, people who you've supported and you know, people of, of, of coming generations who found themselves in important positions but then became uncomfortable and left. What are the kind of things that, that drive people uh, who, who get the education, who get the support, who take the step who become part of the institution and then feel they have to leave. What is it that happens, whether it's within a law firm or a corporation or a government agency, what is it that happens that leads people then to leave after they've achieved the position they set out to get? Yeah, I mean, I think some of it um, relates to that lack of upward mobility, Um, just the feeling that um, those who are influential within the, the law firm and powerful within the law firm are going to um, pass on the reins to people who look like them and don't look like uh, folks of color in the firm. So I think uh, upward mobility um, is a big issue. You know, I, I would invite any um, uh, woman of color or any woman lawyer, uh, frankly, to talk about um, the pressures of being a mother in a, in a law firm are, and that drives a lot of women to leave the law as well, especially women of color. So I think there are, I mean, the, the nature of the beast is that it's very challenging. Working in a law firm is incredibly challenging. Um, and at the same time, that doesn't mean that things can, can um, improve in, in terms of understanding what the needs are of the folks that you want to stay at the firm, the folks that you want to see get promoted. Um, we, we just have to be much more intentional about, you know, who we uh, give assignments to or who are going to be, um, who do we train up to do business development? Um, it, it, I, I've heard this a number of times from um, lawyers of color who are friends of mine who say, I have no idea how to build a book of business, and yet everyone else seems to know how, and I, I don't know what to do. And 
I feel like that is a problem that has persisted over the decades. Yeah, doing that um, building, you know, general uh, general councils have had a huge impact on this without mentioning the names of companies. Uh, there have been many prominent uh, corporations whose general counsel uh, has required when the so-called beauty contests are held for who should uh, they hire to represent in significant matters, uh, require that the firm demonstrate uh, it, it, its people, its diversity, uh, that they meet with a diverse group of people. And there has been at least one, and I think more than one major corporation, there are now several, uh, that say that they want to know who the contact person is at the firm, whether that person is, is historic, comes from a historically underrepresented group. And in at least one case that I know of, a major corporation has put its, its conditions that that person then, to the extent there is origination credit, within firm compensation be given, that that person be given the origination credit. And there have been a couple of instances where firms have, have essentially gotten back to that general counsel and said, you can't tell us who should get origination credit. And the general counsel said, we don't need to give you legal business. And the general counsels who represent major clients at the major clientele of law firms have an enormous influence over this. And I think the increasing diversity of general counsel especially in terms of women becoming general counsel as well as others, is a major factor here in, 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 in use, focusing on the phrase you've used, how do I build a book of business? The GCs who are the clients have had a very significant impact on this. Yeah, I think that's true. And I'm, I, I think it's a great um, driver of change. Uh, if it's coming from the clients, then uh, you know, the, the legal community will respond. We have been talking about change, how it occurs, the problems that young lawyers, especially from historically underrepresented groups, face in law firms. This is a story, and these are stories that the Daily Journal covers on a regular basis. The Daily Journal also covers many other stories to keep everyone up to date in the legal profession. Let's take another break so you can hear more about the other things the Daily Journal is, is covering. The Weekly Brief is brought to you by The Daily Journal, California's largest legal newspaper. Here are some of our top stories from the week of July 5th. 3rd District Court of Appeal presiding Justice Vance Ray broke his silence on the complaints about slow decisions coming out of the district. In a sharp rebuke of John Eisenberg's allegations, Ray said Eisenberg is wrong about the 3rd District systemically denying calendar preferences for criminal appeals. Ray instead points to the high volume of cases the court is handling. Since 2018, Ray said nearly 3,000 criminal appeals were filed in the district, and the court would require a substantial increase in staff to decrease the wait time for appeals. Ray's comments came in response to Eisenberg's petition to the California Supreme Court, asking to compel the 3rd District to give calendar preference to criminal appeals. It's the latest in Eisenberg's campaign to force appellate courts to address what he says are long-standing backlogs. Eisenberg and retired appellate justice Gary Strankman previously asked the Supreme Court to transfer cases out of the 3rd District, but it declined to do so. The U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission settled a lawsuit with six states that claimed the Trump administration made it harder to combat workplace discrimination, harassment, and retaliation. The settlement means the EEOC will give state agencies access to certain data about employers in their jurisdiction. That data comes in the form of EEO-1 reports, which state agencies had access to before 2019. That's when, according to the lawsuit, the EEOC cut off access without warning or following formal rulemaking procedures. 
The former administration said the changes were an attempt to improve the commission's data governance and attempted to get the lawsuit dismissed. The plaintiffs argued the reports helped state agencies in enforcing anti-discrimination laws. And even though U.S. District Judge Edward Chen approved the settlement, it already aligns with new EEOC policy that effectively rescinded the Trump administration policy. U.S. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas dipped into cannabis law with a statement about federal prohibition. So what does that mean for marijuana legalization? Thomas's statement questioned whether the federal government's policy has been undermined by subsequent policy decisions. As one of the most prominent conservative voices on the bench, legal observers see his statement as politically and legally significant, even though they don't think his statements will suddenly lead to legalization. Thomas wrote that the federal government, quote, simultaneously tolerates and forbids local use of marijuana, end quote, and said this contradiction creates problems. Though it's unlikely that marijuana legalization will come out of the courts, attorneys and advocates say Thomas has contributed in a significant way to the cannabis conversation. To read these stories and more, go to dailyjournal.com articles. We're now back from the break, uh, and I want to continue uh, the discussion of promoting upward mobility and, and the barriers to it. But there are other barriers we're dealing with. It, it, the law firm debt, has that been a significant factor that people have talked to you about as they move out into the world? People I'm sorry, the law firm? Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, student debt. I didn't mean law oh, firm. Student debt, yes, yes. yes. That is um, a major issue. Um, I think many studies have now revealed that the debt burden that law students and, and lawyers of color face are higher than their white counterparts. And so I think the pressures to... Um, pursue a career choice that will help alleviate some of these um, incredible pressures um, is very strong, right? And a lot of folks of color are, are, um, you know, very well qualified uh, to do law firm jobs. Um, At the same time, you know, we know that lawyers of color are also very interested in pursuing public service and pursuing nonprofit work. In fact, um, the state bar came out with a study, uh, actually a diversity report card that shows that attorneys of color are more represented um, in the public sector um, and in the nonprofit sector than in in in-house in law firm. I think because of this idea that folks uh, want to give back uh, and serve the community. Um, I did want to talk also, um, in addition to the student debt issue, Um, being a major driver for career choices um, and longevity in law. Two other issues are really big that um, attorneys of color and law students of color face. One is imposter syndrome and one is microaggressions. And those are like buzzwords. um, And so I just want to break it down a little bit. Um, So imposter syndrome is uh, what a, a person of color feels in a situation where even though they are incredibly qualified, as qualified as anyone else at the table, are made to feel by the conditions um, that they're walking into that they do not belong. Um, And this is why a lot of folks, I think, um, are afraid to step up into leadership roles because they feel like, well, you know, maybe I don't belong here in the first place. Um, because I, I, I'm doing the same thing everyone else is doing and I'm kind of not getting recognized in the same way. And so that's, you know, that's, um, 
a, a serious issue that I think needs to be made more commonly understood. And then the second is microaggressions. And microaggressions are um, experiences that um, are, are small. Um, they're not like gigantic overt acts of like intentional discrimination, but they are um, comments, they are um, decisions that are made that um, make someone feel like they are not um, also not welcome. Um, and so these two experiences, I think, are big drivers uh, of what why we do what we do, because we at Change Lawyers need understand the need to name these types of problems, because when you name them, they have a shape um, and there's something you can do about it. But, you know, similar to how implicit bias has penetrated, you know, kind of into the legal community uh, and now people understand what implicit bias is, there are now other um, technical terms, I guess you could say, for describing what the experiences are of folks of color in the workplace. Yeah, you know, all those things. I, I want to go back to the uh, extra uh, student debt, the amount of student debt on historically un, uh, uh, underrepresented uh, community students from those communities. There is an objective reason for that, because those students are more likely to come from families that do not have the resources to make contributions uh, to the cost of the education. I mean, that's just a fact when you look at income levels in, 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 in different communities. Uh, and so that is simply an objective fact that students that come from communities and families that don't have the necessary resources will have greater debt, and that may be a separate issue that, that we have to deal with. Uh, the issues of, of uh, imposter syndrome and implicit bias and, and, and microaggression really require simply greater training programs within law firms and other institutions uh, to, to become aware of them. Uh, and and uh, I, I don't know if change lawyers, I know there are many programs that change lawyers does in, a different, in addition to, uh, uh, to making, doing the scholarships, uh, but regularly there are uh, events on Zoom that are made available uh, that come by email in terms of people talking about uh, these issues. And, and that's part of what you may make available to yourself by going on the changelawyers.org website and, and uh, signing up uh, for the news brief. But does the foundation uh, do anything in terms of training outside the, the student, go to the law firms and talk about training within law firms and other institutions about how to deal with these issues? Um, not as a formal program, um, but certainly if um, invited, we show up and we, you know, tell a little bit um, about the story. Because I think the thing that is important to, uh, to recognize within um, the student debt issue, within microaggressions, imposter syndrome, implicit bias, are that these issues are very upstream and they are in American society. And because the legal community operates within American society, um, it reflects the problems that are going on more broadly. And so, you know, I think it is incumbent upon us um, because we are lawyers, because we all take an oath to uphold the Constitution of the United States, that we have, um, I would argue, a special duty to understand, um, you know, what are some of these upstream causes that, that effectuate these inequalities um, and these disproportionate 
um, racial outcomes uh, that um, that just need to be part of the analysis. So, you know, you could, for example, uh, you could do a diversity training, but if you're not looking more upstream at some of the issues that attorneys of color are facing in terms of their barriers to succeeding in the workforce, it's just going to be that. It's just going to be a diversity training and it's going to end there and there won't be any substantial change that flows from that. But I think it's just adopting this more holistic kind of understanding of why things are the way they are um, that will allow some legal organizations to really excel in why some others are going to just be faced with kind of the same problems year year on year. And that's why the, the, uh, there's been so much discussion about what's called uh, these, these structural issues uh, that people historically may have thought about this about individual issues, that a particular individual is uh, something happens to a particular individual. But what you're talking about in the larger discussion has become a recognition that there are structural issues throughout organizations and throughout how we function that have these impacts and the dealing with them require not just talking about individual conduct but talking about those structural issues as well yes no that's exactly right and you know um just to put a finer point on it you know i think it does require some deep introspection and i guess i would just say doing the work doing the work in order to understand the role that we may be even passively playing um, in upholding a status quo that is not working for everyone. And it's not, you know, to cast um, cast blame or anything like that, but it's really saying, you know, how can we take more affirmative steps to change the status quo? And what role can I play, even if I um, haven't played this role in the past. You know, I'm a firm believer that people can change. I'm a firm believer that organizations can change. But it ultimately, at the end of the day, it requires the will to change, to make things better, to make things more fair, to make things more inclusive. Well, let, and that's, I think, the invitation that we all have at this time. But let me just mention, as, as we uh, continue our discussion on this, one area where there has been a very practical impact in terms of what you're talking about. Uh, you know, extensive studies of, of different generations on juries, millennials, Gen Z, and, and, uh, and the requirement now that the trial teams, it's long past the point where trial teams are no longer diverse. Every firm that tries cases understands that at the, at, at the council table, there has to be a diverse group that not just sits for window dressing, but that participates actively in the trial uh, because now that the juries are diverse and given the power the juries have, uh, trial lawyers, plaintiffs and defendants and through all firms are understanding the importance of a diverse group of counsel at the trial table. And that is of necessity, again, opening opportunities because of the need to have the kind of results people want at trials. So along the way, we uh, have to learn the specific things that are happening and, and raise all the issues that you've raised. What's so interesting for me and, and why I'm so delighted that you've joined us for this, Chris, is that, as I said, I think in your life, you've demonstrated the kind of change that happens in the Filipino American community and, and in underrepresented communities. And then you've become, through your work as executive director of Change Lawyers, become part of how these changes are made. Uh, and I, and, and I want to congratulate you on what you've done. 
And thank you again for taking the time to be with us. I think it's tremendously important uh, that people throughout the profession of different generations come to understand uh, the impatience, the perspective, and the policies, and the relationships that you, through change lawyers and the different generations, are bringing to the legal profession. Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. Thank you so much for inviting me. I can't believe we've blown through an hour, uh, but uh, thank you again so much. It's, uh, it's truly an honor to be with you.